Hello, I'm Allison Warner, host of the Plastic Surgery Practice Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Babek Azizadeh, double board certified in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery and ortholaryngology head and neck surgery. He is also the director of the Facial Paralysis Institute in Los Angeles and is an associate clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Today, he's going to talk to us about facial paralysis and facial paralysis reconstruction. Dr. Azizadeh, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Allison. So excited to be here. Great. Well, to get started, can you talk about how you got interested in specializing in facial paralysis and facial paralysis reconstruction? Yeah. So um, I uh, was, uh, I did my medical school and training at UCLA, and my residency was in head and neck surgery. And, um, you know, facial paralysis was like a teeny, teeny part of, you know, our training at that time. And um, unfortunately, one of my wife's really, really close friends uh, had a misdiagnosed brain tumor, ended up developing facial paralysis. And she basically, you know, asked me, oh, my God, she needs, you know, her face fixed. And I was like, I, I don't know anyone really that does this. And it was kind of at that time that I got really, really interested in uh, learning more about it. Very few people around the world were really, had any real specialization in it. And um, after I did my facial plastic and reconstructive surgery uh, fellowship at Harvard, I really kind of, it was one of my passion projects. Of course, majority was like facelifts and rhinoplasty, but this became like a big passion project for me, for uh, my practice. Okay. So let's do a little bit of the basics because you did mention there that facial paralysis is not a big component of the curriculum. What is facial paralysis? What is happening? So we have uh, 17 muscles on either side of our face that allows us to express ourselves. Happiness, sadness, anger, um, in addition to controlling our articulation around our mouth, the way our, uh, we control food as well as speech around the mouth and closing of our eyes. So these muscles are controlled by the brain. And most of the time, it's really instinctual movements. We're not really thinking about it. And the way that the brain is connected to these muscles but is by the facial nerve, which is essentially a biological wire, right? That connects the brain to these muscles. And this nerve um, initially travels, all, all the little micronerves travel together. And as they leave the brain and leave the skull, they come into the face and divide up and go into the various muscles and control the various muscles depending on our expression. So any type of injury either in the brain in the nerve within the brain, in the nerve within the skull, or in the face can result in smile or facial dysfunction, and our expressions can be impacted. The most common cause is Bell's palsy. And basically, Bell's palsy is a viral reactivation uh, of the nerve that causes the nerve to stop working temporarily. For most people, they recover completely, but about 20 to 30% get a disorganized recovery. Other types, some kids are born with Mobius syndrome that can cause facial paralysis or otherwise 
You could have tumors of the parotid. You could have brain tumors, benign or otherwise. So anything that trauma, anything that interrupts the nerve, uh, Lyme disease, uh, you know, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is a different type of virus. So all of these things that are either virus, inflammation, infection, um, you know, tumor, trauma can cause an interruption of that nerve. And if interruption happens, your face stops working normally. So what is the plastic surgeon's role in treating facial paralysis? Yeah, so plastic surgeons typically manage facial paralysis after it's been set in, meaning after a period of time when the nerve hasn't recovered correctly or hasn't recovered at all. Because you get facial disfigurement, right? Smile disfigurement. And um, plastic surgery, again, uh, traditionally was all about just creating some improvement in symmetry. Then it was about kind of what we call static procedures where we just lift the face or lift the laugh line. And then over the past 20 years, we have been developing more and more dynamic reconstructive efforts that can allow the individual to smile more naturally, more emotionally, and more instinctually. So you want to kind of with facial paralysis, there's, you know, you want to make the individual look inconspicuous. So when they're socializing or they're going out to the supermarket, someone doesn't say, oh my God, have you had a stroke? And the second thing is you want to reintegrate them into their social life so that when they're sitting across the table at dinner or if they're a teacher and people aren't saying, wait, what's happening to your face when they're trying to smile or move their face? So what types of procedures are um, you most often doing with the various types of paralysis? That's a great question. Um, it's really individualized, very individualized, because there's no two individuals that have exactly the same situation or circumstance based on their age, based on their desire, based on their goals, and based on the type of paralysis. If we broadly you know, separate out facial paralysis into two different categories, one is complete paralysis, where there is zero activity the nerves have not regenerated, so there's no movement. Everything's very loose. The second category is a disorganized nerve regeneration where there is some activity, some muscle movements, something there, but it's not back to normal. So in individuals who have zero activity, no activity at all, it really depends on how long it's been that they've been inactive because muscles if they've been paralyzed for a period of time, more than two years typically, they atrophy. We cannot revive those muscles. If it's less than two years, we can revive those muscles by connecting nerves that maybe go to the tongue, maybe go to the chewing muscle, into the facial nerve to revive the muscles. And then we can do other fancy nerve reorientations and rerouting or muscle transplantations that can help them smile more spontaneously. So for individuals who are fully paralyzed under two years, you try to revive their muscles. That's really critical. For individuals who are born with facial paralysis or have had it, again, fully paralyzed for more than two years, their muscles are atrophied. So you have to introduce new muscles 
to help them smile. And the, typically we get muscles from the inner thigh, something called the gracilis muscle, or from the chest called the pectoralis minor muscle to essentially replace the lost muscle. And then we connect various nerves to them to help the individual smile naturally and aesthetically. Obviously, when you replace a teeny, thin, soft, pliable 17 muscles with one gracilis muscle, which is really a power muscle, right? Because it's part of our lower extremity. It's not going to give you, ex you're not going to get to 95% you know, improvement. You'll get, you get a dramatic improvement, but it's still not ideal. So that's kind of the approach I like to use for patients who are fully paralyzed. For patients who have what we call synkinesis, which is this disorganized nerve regeneration, which most often happens after Bell's palsy, we didn't have a great solution because those other treatments kind of created actually deformities. They weren't really doing the problem, doing really anything. What we found, and this is something that I kind of pioneered and really advanced, was that we realized that the reason they don't smile well is because their frowning muscles, their grimacing muscles, the negative emotional muscles were overactive, preventing the smile happiness muscles to work naturally. So it's so, almost like a misfiring? Misfiring, exactly. I like that, misfiring. So what we do for individuals like that is two things, two, three things really. We use Botox, target it, in various muscles. That works well around the eye area very well. We use physiotherapy and it's really a lot of relaxation uh, therapy. It's kind of like a cramp of your face if you think about it. So a lot of stretching and neuromuscular retraining. And then I pioneered a surgery called selective neurolysis where I actually go in and counterintuitively cut facial nerve branches that are going to the negative emotional muscles. So by releasing and relaxing and reducing the activity of those counterproductive muscles, we allow the small muscles to work better. And since those muscles are connected to the brain, it's their own facial nerve, it's super natural results. And we can get sometimes patients to 90, 95%, maybe even more improvement in their condition. So that's kind of the strategic planning. <laughs> Again, uh, it depends. Some people don't want to have surgery. Some people don't want to have Botox. Some people, you know, want as good as they can get. Some people just want to get some improve improvement. So we try to kind of be well balanced and listen to our patients and make sure that we can get them to their goals. Yeah. How common is it to have a, a plastic surgeon or a reconstructive surgeon as part of the care team for someone dealing with facial paralysis? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there are now more and more what we call facial nerve centers around the country, but it's still very, very rare. It's a very, this is a very complex, it's not just like your experience, it's just complex surgery, microsurgery. And then you need a lot of experience with it. I kind of, you know, it's like robotic surgery that, you know, a lot of, you know, it's like you're good, you become great only after you've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and you're doing it every day. For the 
once in a while robotic surgeon, they just can't get that good, right? And facial nerve is like that. It's a very technically challenging and a lot of decision-making. And those things typically require a lot of experience, expertise. And then there's a humanity to it, right? There's a compassionate part. And then there's an understanding of what the individual is looking for. So that's how we all kind of come together in terms of coming, you know, bringing the best possible care. Would you consider, because uh, I'm imagining for a patient, facial paralysis patient, there is a larger care team. Or do you often find yourself working with other doctors um, having kind of that collaborative approach? Yeah. I mean, I would say there are three critical, maybe four critical uh, subspecialists that need to be involved. Not in every patient, but sometimes we, we need availability of those. I wear a lot of those hats because I've just been doing this for a long time and I kind of know the little minutia, but for the most part, you need obviously the plastic surgeon, facial plastic surgeon that, you know, that understands nerve transfers, muscle transfers, nerve, I mean, those things in the outside, uh, a neuroautologist, which is an ENT that specializes in, uh, um, in the cranial nerves within the bone because that's where the nerve travels and so sometimes there are tumors there and so forth so once in a while we need like i work with a house clinic we have like an amazing neurotology team there uh, you need a head and neck oncologist someone who understands parotid tumors and parotid cancers so one of my main team members dr larian is world's top a parotid surgeon, and then you need a physiotherapist, someone who can work with the retraining, rehab, and so forth. So those are kind of the four critical. Not all the time do you need those people. Sometimes you don't, sometimes you do. Is there, is facial paralysis more common in one gender than the other? No, no. I mean, we, we, we don't know exactly because a lot of people don't necessarily it goes into a database obviously as a whole in plastic surgery women seek out more care than men do so majority of our patients are uh female uh, but i don't think there's any particular one you know uh, gender that has more with the only exception being that bell's palsy does tend to occur not very often, but is associated with pregnancy. So because obviously um, uh, that has a you know different gender process, that tends to have more females. You mentioned a little bit there um, how you're using Botox. Um, are there other non-surgical options um, that are beneficial in this treatment? We use Botox, I would say, at the core of what we're trying to deal with is obviously muscle nerve dysfunction. But there's also facial asymmetry that takes place, right? When you have paralysis on one side versus the other, there's a facial asymmetry. So I, in my armamentarium, utilize fillers, energy-based devices, uh, as well as you know, deep plane facelift and other blufferplasty techniques to create symmetry. So there are 
a lot of various aesthetic treatments that we modify to create better symmetry. Like I do a lot of lip lifts to create asymmetrically to create improvement in the lip position. Uh, so some people have like nasal obstruction. We have to do rhinoplasty. So there's a lot of different techniques that we can use to help, but those are the cornerstones. How has facial paralysis reconstruction kind of evolved over the last decade, 20 years? And are there anything, is there anything promising, like any promising advancement that you're kind of keeping an eye on at this point? Um, so there's been a huge change. I think mainly I would say over the last two decades, we've really improved our outcomes with like gracilis muscle transfer, which is a very important tool, as we talked about for kids and adults with full paralysis, Mobius syndrome, et cetera. Um, the second, I think the second big advance was the selective neurolysis. That's been really game changer because the largest population of facial paralysis were Bell's palsy and Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. We had no treatments for them, right? We were really a small percentage end up having full paralysis. So that was a huge game changer because we were able to offer treatments when before there weren't really great treatments. The next phase, I, I, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm hoping it's really understanding better how we can prevent synkinesis, prevent disorganized growth, improve nerve regeneration by a variety of different, you know, stem cell approaches, uh, other therapeutic treatments um, for that. I have been working on a project looking at um, artificial muscles. That's a long way away, but that could potentially be at some point very, very important in the treatment algorithm. Um, so there isn't any, any like major thing that I see at this point, but sometimes it just happens and we don't know it. What would your advice be to other facial plastic surgeons and reconstructive surgeons who are kind of interested in working more in depth on facial paralysis? Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, you know, obviously when it comes to, um, you know, technical advances, we're always evolving, right? Um, you know, I'm not doing the same facelift I was doing 20 years ago. Uh, I'm not doing the same rhinoplasty I, I was doing 20 years ago and eyelid surgery. But facial paralysis is a little bit different and facial reanimation is a little bit different. I really believe you have to get some form of fellowship training because it's so complicated. There's so many different angles and viewpoints and techniques. It's a whole specialty on its own. So I would say for the young trainees, if you have an interest, there, there are a few, there's about four or five facial plastics fellowships that have a big component or moderate component of facial reanimation. In them. You should look at those. Um, and otherwise, I think it's, I actually think it's a very hard field to really dive in because it's not like the nerve procedures we're doing, those aren't the nerve procedure, those aren't procedures that a facelift surgeon does or a blepharoplasty surgeon does, or it's just a different process. So I don't want to ever discourage someone from doing it, but I do think you need really fellowship training. And right. So it's about, you know, maybe making a good, having a good relationship to have someone to refer to someone to. So. Yeah, I mean, just like everything else. I mean, I don't, I, I don't do 95% of the plastic surgery world, right? 
So I refer those out. And this is, you know, I, I would say that, I mean, I've always had a philosophy of do the things you love and do the things you do well. And everything else, if there's someone better and someone has more expertise, it's really unfair if there's access to them for me to do it rather than sending them to someone else. What excites you about the field? I mean, I love, I, I you know, it. First of all, medicine as a whole is a phenomenal field if you're not burnt out and you love what you do. Surgery, another great aspect, plastic surgery, facial plastic surgery is, the, in my mind, the best field. As long as you do the things you love and as long as you're really focused in on becoming the best you can be and providing superior care. Um, and this field, I think, combines a few things that are really, really great. Number one, it's a, you know, it's a hands-on field, right? We're operating, we're in the surgery. We're kind of a blend of, you know, surgery, artist, electrical engineer, structural engineer, architect. So you have like all these different artistic right side of the brain, left side of the brain, all working together. And that's why I love, I, I love it. There's no, you know, no two patients that are alike. Everybody needs something different and wants something different. So it brings brings a level of variety uh, and excitement and novelty every day. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of painful aspects of being a surgeon. We don't need to get into that. That's, a, <laughs> that's on its own. I'm happy to come back at a separate time. But uh, but as a whole, it is a really really fulfilling and positive field. Well, thank you so much for your time and for kind of sharing your experience and, you know, um, the work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Allison. I'm really honored to be here. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Plastic Surgery Practice Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast network, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music. And be sure to check out plasticsurgerypractice.com to keep up with the latest industry news. Until next time, take care.